Now, if you want to know what hell looks like, I actually have real photographic evidence of hell. Um, this is it. This is the Valley of Hinnom outside the south gate of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it actually looks better than this now. I was just there two years ago and was in there. It's a beautiful city park uh, now. Uh, hell is actually beautiful this time of year. Just thought you might not know that uh, about hell, but um, welcome to hell. Greetings, Trinitarians. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to the show. Today we're going to be talking about hell and atheists who become atheists and still harbor a fear of hell. And what's up with that? Uh, as we begin, I should go ahead and say that uh, some of you have been asking lately, where is Jonathan Pritchett? Jonathan Pritchett is one of the best parts of the show, and I agree. I've been missing him as well, and Jonathan has not been on some of the most recent episodes because he has been preparing for a conference on this very subject, the nature of hell that is taking place this weekend, uh, the Rethinking Hell Conference. So if you're out there and uh, you would like to go to that conference or maybe watch it online, I'll put some of the stuff in the description there. But um, it's going to be maybe tomorrow night, I think, as of the posting of this episode. But anyway, that's why Jonathan hasn't been around much. But I'm so glad that you're here and I'm excited about this uh, topic, believe it or not. It's a tough topic. It's a topic that... Uh, bothers some people, but uh, we're principally going to be looking at uh, Cosmic Skeptic, but I'm going to jump around a little bit and we'll look at the thoughts and comments of a few different atheists and people who are concerned about hell. So let's go ahead and begin setting it up by taking a look at what Cosmic Skeptic has to say at the very beginning of his video, and then we will come back to it later. I fear eternal damnation but I'm an atheist. Okay, I feel e I fear eternal damnation, but I'm an atheist. So what's up with that? Well, we're going to hear a little bit more of his thoughts in just a little while, but um, I, I want to point out that this is a somewhat common thing. Let's go ahead and check out what somebody else has to say as they call into this talk, Heathen uh, Show. Something, I, I've been an atheist for, you know, like I said last week, for two years now, mm -hmm. and uh, something I'm still trying to get over is this the irrational fear of dying and going to hell. And then this one from the atheist experience. Whatever you want to call it, but my dad really suffers from, uh, you know, like the fear of eternal damnation. And he really just wants your guys' opinion on, like, you know, what's the best way to go about getting past that fear. And let's take a look at this one from The Thinking Atheist. May, you sound rattled. I mean, I get that, right? Your whole world is sort of shifting and perceptions are changing. Do you have a fear of hell? Why does this bother you so much, these questions and doubts? I've been uh, raised believing this for many years. And if your question is, do you fear of a hell? Honestly, I, I do. So you see here, this is a this is a serious issue, and and we're going to see more in just a few moments. But I want to go ahead and set this up by talking a little bit about this. And uh, this may or may not be as long of an episode as it typically is, uh, but I, I want to talk a little bit about it because let me first begin by saying to any atheists that are absolutely dug in, convinced atheists, and you perhaps know what it's like. You've experienced this yourself. And um, I, I want to say something that I hope will will uh, will temper this discussion just a little bit. Um, I appreciate and understand that from the position that you're in, 
when someone is still dealing with this concern, which from your perspective is an irrational concern, it represents a fair amount of psychological damage that has been done in a person's life because of something that you don't think is true. And so when somebody like the characters on these different shows that we've just been sampling, uh, when the host of those shows, you know, seem to really care, and I believe they do, and project a, a sympathy and a, a way to try and deal with those things, it's like a, um, it's kind of a, it's almost like a pastoral care moment, uh, odd as that may sound, where they're really caring about a, another human being, that they, they feel like they've been through what that person has been through, and apparently some of them still going through it. And, uh, and, and so they hurt for those people because they, they believe, you believe perhaps, that we've got a person here who is uh, in, in the midst of psychological turmoil, torment, over uh, something that's not real because they were, from your perspective, indoctrinated as children or whatever. Um, and, and, and even though we disagree on this issue, I want to say that I, I appre- what I can appreciate is the pers- if it's pure, if the motives are pure, a person-to-person compassionate care and trying to help someone out of a stressful uh, issue that, that may plague their lives or at least on occasion bothers them. I, I Listen, as a person who has in his life dealt with a fair amount of anxiety, um, uh, I, I get that. I understand that. So um, I want to say that up front. And, and, and so I could understand if people walk away from this thinking that I'm horrible for advocating for a certain understanding of hell or even doing a show on this subject, So that, that I'm just like all the others. But um, I want you to understand that I, I get it. I get. I mean, I, you out there who are skeptics and atheists and whatever else, you got to understand. I live in the same world that you do. I hear the same same television programs. I hear the same mockery. I hear the same stories of people who have experienced psychological damage because of abuse and things like that. I, I've seen documentaries about cults and what people get in their heads based on that. I live in the same world as you do. I do get it, okay? And I get that from your perspective. That's what this looks like. Understand from my perspective, um, just because um, A may seem in some regards to some people a little bit like B, it doesn't mean that B isn't, uh, or that A isn't true, uh, even though we found out that B was false, right? There are counterfeits in this world. If you find a counterfeit bill, it doesn't mean there's not a real genuine dollar bill, right? And, um, and, and I believe, as a reasonably well-educated person, that there is good reason to believe that God exists and that God raised Jesus from the dead. And as a result, that minimally, the Christian message is true. And I believe that there is good reason to believe that there is some judgment coming that Christians refer to by the term hell. And we'll get into more of that in just a few moments. The point is, I believe that there is that you can be intellectually fulfilled and believe in this, and I think that you should. Now, um, but, but, but what I want to pair that with is my appreciation and understanding that for some skeptics, who are trying to help other skeptics? I get where you're coming from. I understand that, and uh, and 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 to a certain level, I appreciate what you're trying to accomplish. Though I disagree with you about this, and think that there is much at stake here. So, I can't do much better than that. That's my heart. Um, if you still think that I'm some kind of a monster, I, I can't. I can't help you. This is this is the state of affairs. 
Um, but we're going to look at some of the comments as we go forward. But but one thing that I do want to do uh, as we begin is I want to do a little bit of, of uh, work in explaining the different the position on hell within the history of the Christian faith. You may not be aware that this idea that uh, what we experience if you die without uh, without a relationship with Christ, that what you experience is eternal conscious torment, has been the dominant view uh, throughout most of church history. Um, it's, in fact, called within theological circles the traditionalist view of hell. And it's because it, it's it's the traditional perspective. But in the early church, there was some division on what the nature of hell is like. So if you hear Christians uh, on uh, YouTube talking about hell and you think they're trying to whitewash it or water it down, perhaps they are, or perhaps it is the case that they're seeing uh, some indication that people in the early church also saw that uh, the traditionalist view of hell, as it is most often caricatured or characterized, may not be the way that, that, that it really is, may not be what the Bible teaches, may not be the nature of hell in reality. So I want to kind of expose you, uh, Christians and skeptics, to uh, what the, the various views among evangelical Christians, and we're talking about conservative evangelical Christians for the most part on this. So let's go ahead and jump right in and start looking a little bit at this sort of stuff. So um, I'm going to use a little bit from a PowerPoint that I used to teach on this subject. Uh, so you'll see that here. Now, there are four words in the Bible that are translated that are translated as hell in English translations. I think that's a mistake, frankly. I, I don't think that should be the, the case. I, I think that uh, particularly the New Testament authors, when we get into the New Testament, they used different words for different concepts for a reason. But uh, most obviously, the King James Version of the Bible, but certainly other versions as well, don't make those same distinctions. Well, the biblical authors used words. Words have meanings, and they use these different words for a reason. So uh, let's take a look. You have um, Sheol, Hades, Tartarus, and Gehenna. So let's go through those. Sheol, which kind of just means the grave, is the Hebrew word Sheol is mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament and is regularly translated as hell by the King James Version. Sheol actually referred to death or the grave and is understood to be the place where both the righteous and the unrighteous go after death. The Greek Septuagint translates Sheol into Hades, including when New Testament authors are quoting Old Testament passages. So uh, when you're talking about Sheol, you're really just talking about the, the, the you know the realm of the dead, death or the grave. It's it's that's that's all we're talking about. It's kind of a stand in there for that. Um, uh, let's see. And then uh, yeah, Hades. Uh, the Greek word Hades appears eleven times in the New Testament and is usually a translation of Sheol. So kind of the same concept here. Um, Jesus uses it only three times. Uh, neither Hades nor Sheol are referring to the ultimate punishment of unbelievers after the judgment. So it's clear that there is a distinction between what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about hell, hell, like after the judgment hell, and uh, whatever is meant by Sheol and Hades. Um, many people use Hades to refer to the intermediate period. So uh, if you are minimally aware of Christian theology, then you're aware that uh, within Christian theology, there, there is this belief among many people that when you die 
obviously your body is buried out here somewhere in a cemetery or cremated or something, but then your spirit or your soul goes to some place. Usually people just kind of say your, your spirit, your soul goes to heaven, right? And there's some kind of an experience there. I have an episode of on heaven that I will post the link to in the, uh, in the, in the description, but, but, but this is certainly not the same thing as ultimate hell, because whatever that experience is like, uh, there's going to be an ultimate judgment, and uh, we will be reunited. Both the uh, believers and unbelievers will be reunited, uh, your soul and your body. And then believers will live in a resurrected kingdom, and those who are unbelievers will experience some kind of an experience, which is the whole point of this show. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but they will experience that both body and soul. Um, and so for that reason, there is an obvious difference between whatever is experienced now by people who are currently dead and after the judgment, whatever that experience, both body and soul is going to be like. So that, and you see that distinction in the New Testament. You may not always obviously see why it is, but if you understand the difference between Hades and Gehenna, then you would, you would get that. Okay. Um, so here's an evidence of that. Revelation 2014 even refers to Hades which would be perhaps the term for the intermediate state where people are right now who are dead, that that place being cast into the lake of fire. Thus, it is not the same place as the lake of fire. Okay, and and uh, hold on to that fire stuff. We're going to get to that in just a few moments. So we've got Hades now. So Sheol and Hades. Then we get to Tartarus. The Greek word Tartarus is from the word Tartaru and is only used once in the New Testament. Tartarus, though translated as hell, just like Sheol and Hades is, uh, or are, uh, contextually refers to a holding place for the demonic. Tartarus is frequently found, according to John Walvoord, in Jewish apocalyptic literature where it refers to a place even lower than hell where the wicked are punished. In the New Testament, it's used in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So Tartarus, translated hell, um, is referring to some kind of a holding place for the demonic. Now look, again, it doesn't matter if you buy this stuff, but you need to, if you're going to criticize the Christian view of hell as a skeptic, you need to at least understand what Christians may mean when they talk about hell. So I think this is kind of important when we go back to our responses to what various skeptics say in this episode. Okay, and then we come to this one, Gehenna. The Greek word Gehenna from the Hebrew Gehenna refers literally to a valley, the valley of the sons of Hinnom. To Jerusalem's west and south, figuratively, it refers to a place of judgment. As a place of judgment, it is only used by Jesus and only in the synoptics. And it is, used, uh, it is used 12 times in the New Testament, once by James in James 3, 7, where the tongue is set aflame with the fire of Gehenna, and 11 times by Jesus. You understand, so the word hell does not appear in the Bible, but it's the, it's the term that is used for, unfortunately, a number of things. But when people are usually thinking of hell, they're thinking of uh, Gehenna, which is after the judgment, uh, hell. Now, if you want to know what hell looks like, I actually have real photographic evidence of hell. Um, this is it. This is the Valley of Hinnom outside the south gate of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it actually looks better than this now. I was just there two years ago and was in there. It's a beautiful city park uh, now. Uh, hell is actually beautiful this time of year. Just thought you might not know that uh, about hell, but um, welcome to hell. That's what it looks like. Uh, but back to Gehenna, uh, according to Steve Gregg, one of our professors and also a, a, a very well-respected scholar, 
Though we have 11 occurrences of this word in the New Testament from the lips of Jesus, some of them are in parallel statements occurring in different gospels. It is probable that Jesus only used the term on four occasions. So you realize that when you look at the gospels, sometimes they tell the same story in different gospels. Well, if you count up those parallels, Jesus talked about uh, Gehenna hell four times. Uh, one is in the Sermon on the Mount. One is in the warnings of the disciples not to fear men. One is in the discourse on relationships. And one is in his denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. So if you ever hear a preacher say, Jesus, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Well, that may well be true. He he didn't have to work too hard to do it. He only had to mention it four times. Um, And so that is uh, something that I think is relevant to mention. So we're talking about Gehenna when we're talking about the... uh, the nature of after the judgment hell. Um, I thought this might be helpful to you for those of you that think the Bible is just trying to scare people into heaven talking about hell left, right, and center. This is a PowerPoint I constructed on uh, hell. This is every single piece of biblical data in the whole of the New Testament, which might even possibly be talking about Gehenna, hell, after the judgment hell. Uh, in some places, it doesn't specifically say Gehenna. It's just talking about the judgment that's coming and things like that. And so there it all is. And it should impress you that this is in font size 10. So admittedly, it's a kind of a small font size, but yet it all fits on comfortably on one PowerPoint slide. And I've not only just given you the references, but also the verses there. So if you want to freeze the frame, you can actually go back and look at that on your own and, and, and perhaps collect all that data. So uh, I think that's pretty interesting. Um, what, what I want you to, uh, let me get this position back right, uh, but what I want you to get from this is that um, uh, there are actually multiple views on hell. So, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer defenses of at least two of them. There are three that are held among evangelicals. Uh, the traditionalist view is obviously the most predominant. That's what is also, believe it or not, by Christians, is referred to as the eternal conscious torment view. The idea that you will be eternally conscious uh, conscious and in torment. I actually need to bring this back for just a second. And so uh, uh, this, uh, see, we have the eternal conscious torment view. Um, There was something specific that I wanted to find on this, but uh, I may not be able to find it. But you have, so you have this view. You also have the, what is known as the conditionalism view uh, or annihilationism. This is the idea that you're going to experience this suffering uh, in hell, perhaps, but that that is ultimately going to end because you will simply die. And people that promote this view will say, look, it's, it's um, you know, passages like Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and following says things like, fear not him which can uh, kill the body, uh, fear him which can kill both the body and soul in hell. The parallel says destroy both body and soul in hell. So the idea they're saying is, look, you know what it means to destroy the body or to kill the body. Here's a parallel to destroy the body and the soul in hell. That sounds like an existence that is of complete annihilation. The person is uh, no longer conscious. So uh, believe it or not, these people that supposed to be supposedly are watering down the biblical language on hell are actually saying, no, 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 take the the straightforward reading and what you get is decay, destroyed, dead. Um, these kind of things. So it's an idea that you that you will. It's they would promote an idea that you will not exist anymore. And then there is a view that um, is to me the least likely uh, possibility, and it is known as the uh, the Christian universalism view. Um, and this is not like universalism, like most people think of it, like an Oprah Winfrey type universalism. Everybody finds their own way to get to heaven type thing. Um, there's you know all gods are real in some sense or something like that. That's that's not that's not what's going on here. The idea idea here is that um, that there is a real hell and people will go there. 
but that they can ultimately be redeemed and, and escape that hell. Uh, there's another term for it. I'm trying to figure out what the other term. I forget the other term of it. There's another term for this idea. Anyway, um, uh, but, but these are the three views. Uh, and But right now among conservative evangelicals, like people who actually are really trying to take the Bible seriously and that I consider are actually making showing, you know, doing a good job with the biblical text, you have the conditionalism view, um, and that's represented online by people at the Rethinking Hell Conference and the Eternal Conscious Torment view. So I wanted you to be aware of those. And you probably heard a little bit about this. Now, um, one thing that I want to say is, so you've got passages like Mark chapter 9, where Jesus is talking about it's better to cut off your arm than to go to Gehenna. It's better to cut off your leg than to go to Gehenna. It'd be better to go uh, to Gehenna with, or to go to heaven with two legs than to go to Gehenna with one leg, or to gouge out your eye instead of going there. The Bible's not telling you to actually dismember yourself. That's not the point. The point is that it would be better for you to do something like that than to go to a place like that. Okay, so that's an important uh, feature there. Hold on. So, uh, so what about this fire imagery? Now, among the people that hold the eternal conscious torment view, the idea that there is, um, that, that there is going to, that you are going to exist forever, uh, without end and that you'll be conscious during that time. There are, uh, there are, there are different, uh, beliefs and options within that group as well. So you have the, uh, the, the group that says, no, 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 Jesus talks about a fire that is never quenched and things like that. Well, that's because there's actual literal fire there that's never going to be quenched. And so um, so that's to be taken literally. Uh, but then the people that would, there are other people that would take the uh, eternal conscious torment view that would say, no, it's, it's, it's more like an eternal conscious depression or something. It's, it's separation from God forevermore. So as a result, you're not going to experience literal flames, but the flames are imagery. Um, and there is biblical evidence that that fire imagery is an image for judgment. And here are some examples, 2 Kings twenty two seventeen, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. And you can see other examples there if you want to pause the video and take a look at those. So uh, you see examples. Um, uh, it's see Jeremiah 7, uh, 32 through 33, and then 19, 6 through 9 actually refers to the Valley of Hinnom and, uh, and forever after it would be a symbol of national judgment. So uh, so you can see why, if you think they're just trying to water it down, you can, maybe they are, but you can see why some people would say, um, both in the conditionalist annihilationist camp and in the eternal conscious torment camp that don't believe in literal flames, would say uh, the fire stuff is imagery. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on there. So I wanted you to be aware of these things. Now, what I want to do next before we jump back into the responses is I want us to talk a little bit about how one might defend these. Uh, let's just take these two options that I want to place on the table here for us to consider. How would someone defend these two ideas in terms of God's fairness or God's justice? Because I realize that for you who are skeptics and atheists out there, one of the common things, how could you believe in this celestial Saddam Hussein who not only uh, allows for you know bad things to happen in this world, but also uh, you know puts people through this kind of torture forever and ever and ever? So let's talk a little bit about that for just a moment. So how would we defend? Let's begin with the eternal conscious torment view of hell, whether that is literal fire or figurative fire, but it is still an eternal conscious existence uh, separated from God. Okay, how would one defend that sort of a view 
uh, how is God just in light of this? I mean, after all, he's supposed to be a God of mercy and love and just, uh, justice and, and all these kind of things. And he's long suffering. So how does this work? Well, um, you know, your mileage may vary on this, and I didn't come up with this defense. I don't know who did, um, but um, I put my own spin on it. So let's imagine that um, uh, I'm watching television and uh, I hear uh, a cat whining at the door. Uh, now, uh, the window, my neighbor's cat. And after several nights of this, I just can't take it anymore. And I do something that I would never do. I go out and I, I uh, kill this cat. Okay, I would never do that. But if I did, there's there's a penalty for that. I don't know what that penalty is. Maybe I have to go uh, to jail for a period of time. Maybe I have to pay a fine. I don't know what the penalty is for, uh, quote unquote, sinning against a cat because I typically don't, uh, I never kill cats. Just want to make that clear. I don't kill cats. But uh, there's a penalty for that. I don't know what the penalty is uh, for, let's just say, sinning against a cat. Okay. But now let's imagine that my neighbor gets more and more and more cats and eventually I kill my neighbor. Now, uh, there's a greater penalty for that, right? Um, I don't, that penalty, I could get the capital punishment where they take my life. I could have to go to prison for the rest of my life. But in some sense, the penalty is much, much greater for killing a human being than it is for killing an animal, a pet, like a cat, <coughs> because we intuitively, and here's what I want you to notice here, that the penalty for sinning against a man that way is equal to my own life. His life is equal to the value of my life. Uh, so sitting against a cat, there's a penalty, but not great at all compared to a man. Uh, sitting against a man or a woman, that's equal to my own life. So you see this. In intuitively, you should be seeing a stair step up of, of uh, intuitive justice. Like you intuitively understand there's a sense of justice that is uh, the penalty must be greater and must be equal to your life in some measure for uh, this second crime than the first against an animal. So then uh, you probably see where we're going with this, but then what must be the penalty for sinning against an eternally, everlastingly valuable God? Uh, what would the penalty be? Well, if the penalty for sinning against a cat is, uh, you know, uh, nominal compared to that of uh, a human and then killing a human is equal to my own life, well, then supposing that such a being does exist and his value is, is maximal, then the penalty for sinning against a maximally great and everlasting God must be an everlasting penalty. If God is just. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but God doesn't have to do that. God could just forget about justice and just forgive everybody. Well, here's the thing. Um, a maximally great God, a good God, for God to be good, morally good, then he must also be just. If we were to catch some uh, ISIS terrorist who has killed a bunch of people, uh, has in involved in uh, terrorist activity, and then we were just to hug him, uh, kiss him on the cheek and say, don't do it again, but you're forgiven. Just go away and go back to your life. Uh, many people, perhaps not you, but many people would see that as a, um, a failure of justice. And, and the, whatever government allowed that to happen would not be as good, morally good of a government because they were not as just as they should have been. So a good God must bring justice, must bring justice if he's to be a good God. And justice is a part of God's nature. It's not your nature to fly like a bird. Uh, it's not God's nature to act unjustly, right? So, uh, so God must act justly. So the just penalty that a loving and good God must enact is uh, everlasting punishment. Now, on the other hand, there could be another option. The other option is that an everlasting person could come and uh, pay the everlasting penalty on behalf of 
us because of our everlasting sins. And as a result of that, then, uh, guess what? Uh, the, the, the justice would have been satisfied and God can be good and just, and yet we can experience his presence forever. So uh, you may not like that, but I, here's what I want to point out. It may not resolve the emotional problem of hell that you see and, and, and that I personally react to as well, but I'll tell you what it does do. I think that it satisfies the intellectual problem of hell. And so I think that is a fitting defense uh, of that view. Others have offered other things and they admit that they're speculative, but one other possibility that I don't personally buy is what is what we could call the eternal offender answer, that perhaps hell wouldn't have been everlasting, but because the person in hell, by virtue of being in hell and separated from the goodness of God, hates God all the more for his being in hell, and as a result, sins all the more, and then will continue in hell. Now, if, if, that, if you don't buy that, I don't really buy that either, but it is one other uh, uh, consideration on the table that um, some Christian thinkers have have put forward. But I think that the um, the, the, the the view that I've just put the everlasting uh, justice of God that way makes some sense of this. You may not like it, but I think it makes sense of God's nature and makes sense of the eternal conscious torment view um, as well. Uh, but what if we were to defend the conditionalist view? Well, there is a spread of varying views in conditional immortality, the annihilationist perspective as well. But we could at the very least say, uh, I think that for many atheists, I hear them say things like, well, you know, um, uh, when you die, why, why are you afraid of death if there's no heaven from an atheist perspective? Because after all, you're, you're, what are you going to be thinking about 10 minutes after you're dead? Oh, you're going to be thinking about the same thing you were thinking about when the pyramids were being built. Namely, nothing. You won't be experiencing any pain. You won't have any experience at all. So if that doesn't bother you, that for um, uh, you know all the years before you were born, you didn't have any experience and it was, wasn't unpleasant, then don't worry about it, right? Well, if you're an atheist and you feel that way, um, the ultimate experience that you'll have will be like that. So in some sense, uh, you know, the, the, this should give you some um, understanding of the ju justice of God. But here's the thing. You still don't want to go to hell. I mean, the biblical passages still make it clear. Many conditionalists believe that you will experience a horrendous uh, experience of suffering prior to annihilation. So that the evangelism that we do, the missionary endeavors, and the things that we experience, that we go through as Christians to reach people is just as important. And in fact, if you listen to the Rethinking Hell crowd, the annihilationist conditionalist group, many of them will say that they, they find this annihilationist view even more terrifying than the, uh, the, than the eternal conscious torment view. So uh, how does someone like me preach on this when, when I preach on hell or talk about hell? Here's what I do. I read the words of Jesus in a passage like Mark chapter 9 and in a passage like Luke chapter 12, verse 4, and I let him do the speaking for me. And he talks about how the flames never die and it's better to cut off your arm, gouge out your eye, whatever else. I let him do the speaking because no Christian can fault you for reading the words of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, we are Christians after all. So I let Jesus speak and then I say something like this. Now, if you're out there and you say, yeah, but Braxton, how do I know that that's not imagery? Well, if it is, here's what that means. That means that what that, that it means that whatever hell is, it was fitting for the New Testament authors to use language like this to describe separation from God. So whatever you think hell is, you don't want to go to hell. And everything we know about the nature of reality and from the Bible tells us that you do not want to go to hell. But the point is, there are these other options out there. And so I want you all to be aware of them 
and aware of how uh, Christians might defend those those options. So uh, when I hear people give this caricature of like devils with horns and pointy tails and pitchforks running around and it's like billions and billions of years of your face melting off and then you're just getting started, I don't think that those skeptics, it, a lot of times skeptics are familiar with like um, a very, a very, uh, and I object to the use of the term fundamentalist, but a very fundamentalist in the negative sense that people use that word idea of what hell is. And uh, they present that and knock it down when with respect to many, many, many Christians throughout church history, that is a, a straw man basically. So uh, so with that under you need to have that understanding as we go into looking at this further. So now with that, let's let's get back to uh, let's let's listen to first what um, what Tracy from the atheist experience and her uh, her uh, uh, co-host, I'm not sure what his name is, what they have to say to a caller who is also experiencing fear of hell even though she's beginning to slip away. So that's a normal Christian view. I don't think grandma's off the mark, but that's not the same as saying everybody gets what they deserve. Because what mm -hmm. she's basically saying is that, you know, the horrible person who does think of the more, most evil things you can think of and say that person, mm -hmm. uh, you know, comes to Jesus in the moment before death, they go to heaven. And then somebody who struggled and tried to do the right thing all their life um, right. doesn't ever hear about Jesus and they die mm -hmm. and then they go to hell. Right. Yeah, so and it's not about deserve, right? People aren't going to end up getting what they deserve. Well, from that from that point of view, you do. Now, actually, I agree with Tracy insofar as people don't get what they deserve. Because um, if I understand any sin against an everlasting God to deserve a penalty, an everlasting penalty, well, then here's the thing. We all deserve hell. However you understand hell, we all deserve, whether it's the conditional annihilationist view, whether it is, oh, and by the way, uh, conditionalists, annihilationists, they also agree with the biblical language of forever and everlasting and, and all those kind of things because they believe that the person will be dead and unconscious everlastingly not to be raised again. So, uh, so, so you know, the thing about it is I agree with her that we don't get what we deserve because we all deserve hell. Uh, the sweetest person who has sinned deserve separation from God, from a maximally good and just God. By virtue of the philosophical categories that I've described, you say, well, and any rejection of that that you're experiencing is merely, uh, I, I can only believe is emotionally driven and not based on the concepts that we've been discussing. And I know how that makes me sound to certain people, but I'm trying to look at this in an intellectual and philosophically rigorous way that takes into account the biblical data and the understanding about what God is like if such a God exists. And if he's maximally good and maximally just, then the penalty would be everlasting, but the sacrifice would be there. And we see both of those things, but God, it just makes so much sense to me. Um, what I don't agree with her, uh, well, let's see, I may want to run it back just a little bit and hear what she says here again. Right thing all their life. Um, oh, yeah. People who experience a deathbed conversion who are horrible, horrible people. They go to they go to heaven. And then, uh, you know, someone who is pretty good uh, from a human perspective, they, they have to go to hell because they never heard about God. Okay, there's a couple of things about this that need to be discussed. Um, first of all is, uh, yeah, that is possible. That, that, is, that is theoretically possible, uh, that uh, a horrible person who has a deathbed conversion. Now, I will say that I, I, I am glad that we serve such a merciful and loving and forgiving God that there are things like deathbed conversions. I mean, it sounds like what certain people 
perhaps this person, I don't want to put any uh, beliefs on her, but it almost sounds like she thinks that uh, God shouldn't forgive this horrible person if such a God exists. But that's how forgiving God is. I mean, you, at some point you've got to decide, are you trying to say that God is not forgiving enough or he's too forgiving? I and mean, we need to we need to figure that out. Uh, but if Adolf Hitler were to have something like a deathbed conversion, and then he were to end up in heaven, or Osama bin Laden, or somebody like that, as Jerry Walls points out, you wouldn't be dealing with the same Saddam Hussein or the same bin Laden. You'd be you'd be you'd be dealing with someone who is as horrified as their uh, sins in life as you are horrified, and I am horrified of them because they would be glorified and forgiven and redeemed and renewed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it wouldn't even uh, be the same person as so far as we mean the, the kind of person that would do something like a Holocaust or uh, September 11th sort of thing. So uh, that is important to say. Uh, and But I have to say, I am skeptical of many deathbed conversions because there are many cases where someone has a deathbed conversion and then somehow recovers. And then after that, they, they go back to the same way that they were living. Uh, there are also cases where they do seem sincere. So I, I don't know about that. You know, you can't, it's not, again, get away from this uh, negative meaning of the term fundamentalist sort of idea that if you just say the right words, and pray a prayer, then you're all of a sudden saved. And frankly, I don't know anyone who believes that it's some kind of a ritual of saying the right words in a sentence that makes you saved. So uh, on a deathbed, it has to be a sincere uh, change of heart and giving everything over to God. So uh, let's keep that in mind. Uh, but secondly, in terms of this idea of a good person that somehow uh, gets to gets to go to, doesn't get to go to heaven because even though they're a good person, they just never heard of God. Um, uh, first of all, let's understand two things. Number one is that uh, based on what we said before, if if I don't know a person, even from an atheist perspective, who has lived long enough to make moral choices, who has never chosen to do something immoral or bad, right? Um, wrong to someone else, perhaps. I think every one of us, I think we know that everyone does that, okay? Whether you want to call that uh, sin or not as an atheist, I think we all know that that's real. Well, those are infractions from our perspective against an everlasting God. And in such a setting, as we've said before, a just God must uh, must punish justly, right? So, so, so this idea of a good person, I'm not going to say there aren't good people, but what I am going to, from a human perspective, but what I am going to say is compared to the holiness of God, any sin we commit uh, is an infraction against our creator. And as a result, puts us in a position where we deserve judgment. So that person that you're thinking of deserves that judgment as much as I do, as much as anybody does, except Jesus. Now, um, from there, what about this idea of people who've never heard the gospel? Now, um, people do. Uh, Christian thinkers have grappled with how to deal with that. Obviously, Old Testament saints who lived before Jesus uh, uh, was was uh, born, the virgin birth and the life of Jesus on earth and the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the people that lived before all of that um, didn't necessarily know the name of Jesus, um, didn't know the story of the cross, uh, but they're believers, right? People like Abraham. Um, and, of course, infants. Most Christians believe that infants um, are going to be in heaven with the Lord, and yet they, they, don't ha- they don't live to have the conscious experience to place their faith uh, consciously in Christ and understand what that means. Um, but we believe that. So there are some Christians who approach this issue and say something like, that it'll be something like that with, with people. Uh, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and I know you don't believe the Bible, but, but I'm just giving you the Christian theology on this so that you can make a fair assessment of whether it's inter- internally co- coherent. But um, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, the invisible things of God are clearly seen through what has been made so that people are without excuse. 
So if someone lives on a, a remote island tribe somewhere and never encounters uh, a gospel, the gospel message, never sees a Bible, never meets a Christian missionary, well, then in such a case, uh, uh, that person still has enough through what we call general revelation, the world around them. They can see that there's a creator. This is one of the reasons why I have a really hard time um, accepting the divine hiddenness arguments that skeptics will bring because you can look not too far beyond yourself. In fact, you can look at yourself right now. And even if you granted evolution and everything else, there seems to be a little bit too much purpose and intent and creativity in the world around us. And uh, I know your mind is right now jumping to uh, responses to that, but just just relax on that for a minute and consider the fact that um, it's, it's just a little too perfect. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, so... So here's the thing. Those people see that there's a God uh, or could see that there's a God. And, uh, and so Christian theology, some people say, some Christians would say that God will judge them based on the light that they had. Uh, that was the view of Billy Graham, as far as I understand it. I think that William Lane Craig has offered that as an option. Um, and then there are other Christians who stand firmly against that. But that is one option on the table, that God will judge them based on the limited light of revelation that they had. Uh, another view is that um, God will judge them or allow them an opportunity after death to accept the message if they so choose. I don't accept that that option, but that is an option that is out there that some people hold to. Uh, there is a interesting response to this from uh, a view within Christianity called Molinism, but I'm not going to get into it because it's very complicated. Should do a whole show on that sometime. Um, but uh, but there's an answer. And then there is the answer that I think is probably the most likely answer, and there's some hinting at it in the scriptures. Um, in Acts chapter 10, we have the story of a man named Cornelius, and uh, he is open to, uh, to the one true God. And so God sends to him uh, someone who can preach the gospel to him and that he can believe. It's interesting that the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, whenever they have reached someone who is in what is called the 1040 window, which is the, um, the those groups that have yet to hear the gospel, when when we get there, it is often the case that, it's my understanding, that, that it's often the case that those people say they were praying for God to send them uh, some somebody to tell them about who he was, who the one true God was. Uh, that's interesting to me. The people who are experiencing, claiming to experience these uh, direct revelations from Jesus and dreams or visions in the Muslim world, um, and then becoming Christians, uh, that that would be an example of Jesus showing up to a person who's open-minded about this uh, and giving them a direct revelation. Uh, so, and Jesus serves as the evangelist. So, I am of the mind uh, that, based on this, that if a person is open to the gospel message, that God will then give them more revelation. If they look at the world around them and say, "There's, I believe there's a God, and God, if I knew who you were, I would, I would worship the one true God." I, I believe God may, in fact, give that person uh, more, uh, more revelation. But you understand that is that is a speculation, admittedly. But when I hear people talk about this, they talk about like all the atheists characterizing the Christian perspective speak as though those people all just go to hell. And um, I know very few Christians who hold such a hold such a position. Um, all right. So so that's kind of what I wanted to say about that. Now, let's let's move on to the next thing. There's another part of their conversation where uh, we need to hear some more. But at the same time, I'm a, I'm afraid that if I stop believing in hell, I might stop believing in God, and, and it really, really gives me anxiety saying that, um, because, I, oh, I don't know, I'm just, <laughs> it just scares me, because what if I'm wrong? 
What if yeah. you're wrong about all kinds of things? I mean, that, if you want to know whether or not you're wrong, the best thing you can do is look into something, right? Yeah, I mean, investigating, investigating it mm -hmm. and getting information. If you if you wanted to know if you were wrong about some kind of environmental impact, what would you do? You'd research it, right? Research it, yeah. If you wanted mm -hmm. to know what kind of car you wanted to buy, well, what if I buy the wrong car? Well, you need to figure out what's important <laughs> to you in a car, and then what would you do? You go online, you research it. Y right. You, you in order to, to know, to, to, to get out of the trap of what if I'm wrong, the best avenue is to get as much information as you can get about a thing. And that yeah. that's going to help you. And then in the end, if if there's if you if you research research research, and there's just not sufficient information, let's say I research the hell out of these cars, and there's just three of them that are just neck and neck. Well, at that point, it just doesn't matter, right? It's like I'm just going to have to pick yeah. one. Pick one, yeah. And so for for <laughs> yeah. what you're doing, if it reaches a point where you look into it and you don't find these answers that you want, and you can't nail it down, at some point you just have to say, I don't know, right? I don't know. And there's right. things in life we don't know. And there's nothing we can do about it. And like I said, if there's a God that's going to send you to hell for not believing in him or her or it at a point when there's not sufficient information for you to make a decision that's informed and solid, how I don't see how you could be blamed for that. But if you are blamed for it, pretty much you're dealing with a God that's going to blame you for it. I mean, I don't yeah. know how else to put it. Don't. don't Okay, uh, so so she makes a little bit of a, uh, a kind of casual argument there at the end that we need to respond to. Um, seems like a wonderful person, uh, again, from a human perspective, as we're talking about uh, people's morality. But it seems like a wonderful person here, Tracy. I've never, uh, I've not, I haven't watched much of her. Um, when I was preparing for the Matt Dillahunty debate, I saw a fair amount of atheist experience and saw a little bit of her, but she seems friendly enough. And so does this other guy. I, I, I see a little more of him. I, I really like him, too. Um, but... Uh, First of all, this idea that him, her, or it, uh, understand something, that the the Bible uses these masculine terms and pronouns for God because the image that the Bible gives us of what God is like is Father, okay? But Christians do not believe that God the Father has a physical body, and therefore he doesn't have biology, and therefore it, he's not in the sense that you mean to indicate with he, she, or it, a gendered being like that, okay? So that's that's... I, it's like I never understand that. Like, and and often it's funny because often uh, skeptics will will think that they're really you know. St I don't think she's doing this, but they think they're really sticking it to you with the with referring to God as she. And it's like I I don't. <laughs> it it doesn't bother me except insofar as I don't think you understand Christian theology on this. God does not have a physical body. Um. So okay. So uh, she says it's like buying a car, right? And if you have three cars in front of you, what? Let's let's imagine that she can only mean one of two things by this, as far as I can tell. In the analogy, if it's analogous, um, if it's not analogous, then it's it's it, she didn't need to say it. But if it's analogous, then she can only mean one of two things by this. Either you got three, the three cars represent three different religions' views of a hell, okay. And if you and if you can't if you can't if you can't find enough information on the car to make a distinction between them, then well, you just say I don't know, and you can't pick. Well, hold up, but you're still going to pick a car, right? You're not going to go without a car. Are you going to say because I can't figure out? Uh, between these three cars, I'm just going to start walking everywhere. No, you still you still need to pick. This didn't solve the problem at all. What you do is now you do deeper research. You're gonna, there is a difference between these cars, and we got to get to the bottom of it, right? Um, in any case, even if you couldn't tell the difference, you still got to pick one, all right? Or she may mean um, that one of these cars is perhaps the atheist position of of not 
of, of choosing not to believe in hell, okay, or not believing in hell, however you want to phrase that. Well, okay, but 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 then you're saying that you're going to buy the three, I can't tell the difference, so I'm just going to step back. It's like you're saying I'm going to remain in a position of neutrality, but there is no position of neutrality. If whether this whether hell exists or not, or heaven exists or not, the reality of whatever death is, is coming down the tracks. And so as a result, you do have to pick. Uh, the position of neutrality is picking. It's picking uh, not to place your faith in Christ and to commit yourself indirectly, though it may be, to the atheist position. Um, and if you're right, well, then great. And this is where I'm not a fan of Pascal's wager, but here's where I sound a little bit like Pascal. Uh, uh, okay, you're gonna if if you're right, then g- good for you. I didn't live a life any less fulfilling than you did, by the way, and uh, and I won't know any different, right? <laughs> but if you're wrong, there there is a lot at stake here. Okay, now I don't use Pascal's wager as some kind of an argument for God because I don't think it is an argument for God. But what I do think it is, is an admonition to take these things much more seriously than buying a car or even environmental issues, because there is a lot at stake. If Christianity is true, this is an incredibly relevant thing for you to consider. If it's not true, it's completely irrelevant. But from your perspective, not knowing, or as an atheist who still occasionally has concerns about it, it is very important that, that you figure this out. There is something important. So what if I can't figure it out? Well, you should still look for the evidence and um, and look at what the data seems to indicate. And if the data seems to indicate that God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, well, then that puts us in a position to have some good reasons to believe that what Jesus was talking about with Gehenna, separation from God, um, should be should be believed. So, uh, you know, that that's that's um, that's where I want to go with that. Now, secondly, I want to say. Um, this idea that, uh, well, you know, uh, that, that hell, we, we you know, we, if, 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 we, if God doesn't care enough about you to let you know more clearly, then I guess, um, you know, he's not much of a God or, hey, don't worry about it because he's just going to be against you anyway. Um, I, I don't recognize this, uh, this kind of thinking except as a mockery because the fact is, there is plenty of good evidence to believe, good reasons to believe. Do not listen to what people are saying out there. There's plenty of good reasons. Just just look at the arguments and reasons and evidences um, and, and look at the theistic arguments that I give in, in other episodes. Look at the resurrection case. Uh, there's plenty of good evidence to believe, and every physical object and concept in the universe could be used as a part of an evidence for God and much of it for specifically the Christian God. And so... Um, there is definitely enough that, that that you should be siding on 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 the side of of the truth here. I think is the truth. Um, I realize that that could be offensive to you if you're an atheist, but I'm sorry. Uh, you know, if you guys can run around saying there's no evidence, there's no evidence. I can certainly say what I believe, and that there is really good evidence. And so there's much at stake here, much on the line. And so you should consider this deeply. Now, um, as for this idea that. Um, uh, well, let's go ahead and move on to Cosmic Skeptic. Let's hear what he has to say um, more deeply here. But I was still left, no matter how strongly I decided that God's existence didn't make sense, I was still left with an instinctual fear of this eternal damnation. It's just something that doesn't go away. 
Um, and usually it, it's nothing for me to worry about. It's just like a five second blip when I'm sat on a bus looking out of a window. Um, I'm a sinner, I'm going to hell, I'm going to die and suffer for eternity, and then it's gone because my logic and reason sort of takes over. Um, but when it, when it gets really bad, you know, it can sort of keep you up at night. And this is the most frustrating thing about this condition, is that I can use my logic and reason. With every bit of logic that I have in my mind, I can convince myself that there is no hell, there is no eternity, and I'm not going to suffer. But it doesn't matter how strongly I believe that. I cannot get away from this instinctual fear that's been drilled into me as a child, even though it might have been drilled into me uh, inadvertently. It was drilled into me nonetheless. It's horrible. I mean, it's horrible enough just having to experience these blips. I can't imagine what that must be like living with that for, for your entire life, non-stop. And there are people out there who do live like that. And so Okay, now, now here's where, uh, with all of this, I want to I rein it back into a point where I want to be, you know, I'm in an odd spot here because I realize that for those of you who don't believe, the struggle that he's describing is heartbreaking to you, that you were indoctrinated into something from a young age, and now you can't shake this fear that does rip a lot of joy away from you. But, and so as a result, for someone like me to be giving reasons to believe in that place, even if you don't buy it, you might be sitting there thinking he's making it, he, he, he may cause other people to think more seriously about this, and that is just wrong. He's worsening the problem that Alex is here describing. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I get that. But as I'm trying to see that from your perspective, join me in, in the same. Look at it from my perspective. I'm not doing this because I'm trying to ruin your day. Uh, you may or may not believe this about me, but the reason I'm doing this is because whoever you are, I love you. And I believe that God loves you, even though I don't know you. He knows you. And I... I believe that this is the truth about the nature of reality. I've looked at it from every angle. And as a result of that, I, I, I worry for people. See, skeptics online will say, that's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. That is just indoctrination. And we can see it with other things. But understand that, um, that it is possible, unless you have some sort of Cartesian certainty that no atheist I'm aware of believes they have that God does not exist and that Christianity is false. Um, unless you have that, it is at least possible that, that the reason you have that prompting in the moments where you finally stop thinking about your YouTube videos, Alex, or stop thinking about your schoolwork, and you just spend a moment looking out the window when, when perhaps God can get to you, perhaps in those moments that, that actually isn't just fake or indoctrination, perhaps there is something to that. And I'm not just talking to Alex, I'm talking to everyone listening. I understand completely how that sounds, but it's because of my love for you and God's love for you that this warning is out there. Um, imagine if what we said was, you know, we were living back in the early 20th century and, and we were just starting to figure out that maybe cigarettes were were harmful. I, I, maybe I'm historically wrong. Whenever that was, when we got all those ads, you know, maybe the 40s or 50s, where you know, it's talking about this doctor smokes menthols or whatever, you know, that, that, those, those things. Um, imagine if someone heard the message that this is horribly damaging to your lungs and you could actually get cancer and die a miserable, tormented death. 
um, and and just affect your skin and your other organs and your body would become riddled with cancer and it would be painful and you'd have to be on through go through horrible treatments that make it worse and then finally you die and I just can't shake I mean I want to smoke and enjoy my life but I just constantly am in fear that I and, and I was indoctrinated with this fear because my parents taught me this about cigarettes then, uh, you know, what am I supposed to do? How can I get rid of this anxiety? How can, sometimes when I'm looking out the bus window, I, I, it just, it comes to me. And then my rationality and my logic. I mean, after all, I've seen the, the ads where it says the doc, your doctor smokes menthols. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so I, I know it's not true, but, um, but how do I shake this emotional and irrational fear that cigarettes are bad for me? Now, the, the thing that I'm trying to say with that is I realize you don't, I, you don't see that parallel with hell. But it just all goes back to the ultimate question that we're trying to figure out. Is it true? If it's true, then it is like the cigarette analogy that I just gave. If it's not true, then you're right. Fair enough. But you see, again, this all comes back to the evidence. It all comes back to what is the truth about this. But what the hell discussion does is it shows us that there is much at stake here. There is much at stake, and it is worth you considering this deeply, and it is worth considering what you are giving up and what you are embracing, the risk that you are embracing, if it's false. Let's hear what else he has to say. Some of them, some of them are children. When I say the words child abuse, what springs to mind? Because if you're like most people, uh, then the first thought you'll have is of like physical sexual abuse, because when you hear of child abuse, as, as horrible as it is, like on the news, that's generally the nature of the abuse. But let's not forget that abuse has many different definitions, okay? And according to Google.com, definition of abuse is to use something to bad effect or for a bad purpose, i.e. misuse. Now, education is hands down the most important part of a child's upbringing. Um, and I believe that by telling children that there is only one way to interpret the world and the beauty of the world and that they will go to hell if they reject it. I believe that to be a misuse of education. And to go hand in hand with that, the denial of a proper scientific education in favor of ancient superstition is also a misuse of education and denial is a form of abuse. If a child were denied food or water, you would consider that abuse. If a child were denied a proper education, you would consider that abuse. And so I would argue that denying a child the right to live a life that isn't burdened by guilt and the fear of eternal punishment is abuse. Okay, so I want to comment on this uh, idea that uh, education is the best thing that you can give a, children or the, a child or the most important thing or whatever. No, no. The most important thing that you can give a child is love. Love is the most important thing. And even in spite of this discussion of hell, one of the things that I hope to have offered you an explanation of whether you accept it or not is the understanding that even in light of hell, the Christian message is all about love. It is about the love of Christ that he would be that everlasting person to take the everlasting place for us because he loves us so much. But he's a good God and a good God is a just God. And um, because of that, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we're to love our Lord, our God. And we, we, the best thing you can give a kid is love. Uh, and so if you love a kid, 
if you give a kid an education, it doesn't it doesn't follow necessarily that you're going to love that kid. That you're going to give that kid love. But if you do love a kid, it does mean you're going to tell them the things that are most important for their lives if you're able to do that because that goes along with love. Now, if if you love if if you've loved that kid and you believe that it's true, that Christianity is true, then you'd be a monster not to to teach that kid about those things. If you believe that hell is a reality, you'd be a monster not to tell them that. For those that believe, it would be akin to, in fact, worse than allowing a kid to, to smoke cigarettes and say, despite the fact that I know that's going to give them cancer, uh, or could, likely, um, I'm not, I'm not going to tell them because that could cause them some psychological damage. You see, again, how this all goes back to whether it's true or not and understand that this educational aspect, uh, what, he's, what he's saying is, he's speaking as though the parents all know the truth and thus are denying the kid the, the truth about these matters through education and supplanting it with something the parents know is false. Well, no, if the parents believe, whether you think the parents are right or not, uh, this, is, this is to judge their motivations. I don't know any Christian parents who believe that it's false but are teaching their kids this stuff anyway. And secondly, understand that for most of the history of um, our two countries, um, at least the past, let's just say the past several centuries, you would have been thought of as the one denying them something that they must have by, if you don't teach your kids when you have them, uh, the truth about God and the nature of reality and Christianity and uh, the nature of heaven and hell, you, what kind of monster wouldn't tell them the truth about God? Now, I don't saddle you with that because I realize that you don't believe, right? So uh, let's just remember what people's motivations are and not give them motivations that they don't have. Is it child abuse? Well, it's child abuse. I guess you could make a case that it would be child abuse if you could show that this is false and that the parents know that. Maybe you wouldn't even have to show that the parents know that, but you'd have to show that it's false, you see. So it all comes back down to whether this is true or not. That's what it all boils down to. And the fact that occasionally you are concerned about this, the fact that occasionally for, it sounds like most of the atheists I, I'm, I'm hearing about in these YouTube videos, sounds like that they are, they are, this is a regular phenomenon. You can interpret that, that is data that you're, you have access to. And you can interpret that in one of two ways. You can interpret it as just your indoctrination, or you can interpret that as, Maybe deep down on some level, I do kind of believe this. Because if on some level you didn't kind of believe it, then even the irrational fear wouldn't, wouldn't be there. Many kids are taught to believe in Santa Claus. They don't have the uh, irrational fear as 40-year-olds that a fat man in a suit is going to come down their chimney in the middle of the night, right? They're not concerned about that. Um, they're not worried about monsters under their beds, even though that was a very real fear when they were kids. Um, so, you know, let's just settle down about some of that. But um, I want to offer you this, this serious challenge. Uh, if, if Christianity is true, there is much at stake, and I want you to consider that. We didn't even talk about near-death experiences and the data that's in medical journals and other places about that. I wrote a book called Death is a Doorway, and there are two chapters on near-death experiences. The only thing I ever hear skeptics say about that is, well, you know, whatever's going on there, uh, Muslims see Muslim near-death experiences, Christians see Christian ones, Hindus have Hindus. Yeah, they all describe, you know, they all describe very similar things. But um, 
this being of light or whatever they might encounter, they put their own interpretation on it from their worldview after they're resuscitated. But um, there, are, there are a great number of commonalities, and you can get that in all the literature. It's out there, even from people who are not Christians. There's, there's incredible commonalities. And some people do have hellish experiences. And so uh, we didn't even talk about that. But there is really something to consider here. But I point it back to the same things that I always point back to. Does God exist, and did God raise Jesus from the dead? Because if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, Christianity is true. And because of that, the question of heaven and hell is a real question. And it just might be that even in your atheism, God is still trying to get your attention, to woo you back, not because of some desire to do you psychological damage, but because he loves you and he loves all of us. You know, if, if that's you out there, you can contact me. You can t- contact me at uh, Braxhunt at Yahoo. And I'm sorry, that's not right. Uh, Braxhunter at Yahoo.com. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about this further. But, um, you know, this hasn't been the most happy-go-lucky episode, but I think this is something that needed to be discussed. And if you're out there and, and, and you're going through psychological tor- turmoil because of this, Number one, I want everyone to have a proper understanding of the of the views that evangelicals take on hell, and we've done that. And I also want you to take it seriously enough that you study the issue further. I can agree with Tracy about one thing, and that is if you have questions about something, study it. But don't use confirmation bias. Don't cherry-pick your evidence. Study broadly. Study what Christians have to say about this, and um, and I'll be praying that you come to the right decision. I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.